Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we lay out a framework for five levels of financial independence as we celebrate Independence Day. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I'm Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, it's July. It is July. We're in the second half of the year coming off. Holy cow. Fourth of July and your birthday. Hopefully you had a good weekend. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, definitely got some good weather. The fireworks for Fairfax, Virginia, this is kind of funny to me. There was a shortage of pyrotechnic technicians, I guess, and they didn't have enough guys to shoot fireworks last night in Fairfax. So my city is doing it tonight. We're, we're recording on Tuesday. They could have come to my neighborhood because there is no shortage of amateur pyrotechnic experts in uh, my area of Severn, Maryland, apparently. There you go. Well, the uh, the tight labor market continues because there were not enough professional fireworks guys on the busiest fireworks day of the year. So who knew? Who knew? Now, the other thing I think about when I think of good weather in summertime is golf. Anyone who's listened for more than a couple episodes know that we keep coming back to golf in one form or another. Uh, but I did want to follow up on hole-in-one insurance, which came up on our last episode. And we were curious a little bit about how they would price that. To set the framework again, we were talking about at like charity golf events, sometimes they'll put a cash prize or a car as a reward for someone who hits a hole-in-one on a specific, typically par three on the course. I contacted my insurance guy to learn a little bit more about how this was priced. Here's what I learned. Number one, hole distance and difficulty does make a difference. So they are going to look at the distance for the hole that they're insuring and they're going to price it accordingly. That completely makes sense. It does. For some reason, just thinking about what the application must look like, I didn't know how that would materialize, but it does make sense. Other things they're looking at, the number of golfers in the event and their estimated average handicap. So they're going to ask, how good are these people playing playing this hole? That one seems like the fuzziest, right? I mean, they've got to assume the most error there because most people are either going to not have a true handicap that are playing in some of these charity tournaments or perhaps they are fudging it a little bit and sandbagging. You know, who knows? But I think that's probably the toughest one to have a really accurate feed on unless it's like a really competitive group that has a very tight handicap. As someone who's filled out a lot of insurance applications over the past few years, that's a question I would look at and just like pick a number that seemed close enough to good to me. Yeah. 15, 20, somewhere in that range. I'll play you to a 15 any day, Dan. Bring it on. (laughs) Don't hold me to that. There must always be an independent spotter or a camera on the hole, which... I've definitely seen in practice as I've played my tournaments over the years. And then, of course, the amount that you want insured, whether that be a cash prize or the the value of the vehicle will come into play. So what I got was in a normal scenario for something around $20,000 of prize value, the insurance would be like $500 or less. So that should give you a sense of scale. So $500 to insure a prize worth $20,000. And we should assume that they're going to make money on issuing that insurance more often 
than not. So even if you just did the the uh, multiple there, so 20,000 divided by 500, they assume that 40 tournaments will go by where nobody gets a hole in one or really more, right? So 40 plus tournaments without a hole in one is what they're estimating on like an average $20,000 buy there. Yeah, and that, and that seems frequent even. So you're right. I think they're probably assuming it's going to cost us money to write this policy. We have to pay people along the way. That plus the actual risk, which might be lower, is going to come to call it the $500 number that we got. Yeah, I would bet you've got 80 to 100 golf tournaments where they don't have to issue a payment on that, if not more. Yeah, just a hole-in-one. Imagine how much professional golf we watch every year and how infrequent it is in any given tournament for a group of the best people in the world to get a hole-in-one. They're playing a tougher hole generally than what we are. Um, so I, I do recognize, and I think that that hole difficulty is is very interesting there because most of those pros, if they were playing from the tee boxes we play from and the types of courses that we play, they would chew them up. Perhaps. Or... I feel like I also see a lot of people with dumb luck just who have no idea what they're doing but can get it somehow in the hole uh, by by sheer luck. It's how many, not how, Dan. True that's, that. a, that's an important thing to remember. So let's move into our main topic for today. Being Independence Day week, we wanted to celebrate financial independence. And just as our primary thing that we're going to go through, we're going to actually define it because we think financial independence does not have just a single definition but we've actually broken it into five tiers. Specifically, I've broken it into five tiers, and Dan may feel free to disagree with me as part of this, but I've kind of laid out a framework for what I think we're going to define as financial independence. It's like Ross's hierarchy of needs, to harken back to, to good old Maslow from school. It absolutely is. So I, I'm going to start, and my very first one, and there's others of these out there, by the way. Other people have kind of written their own tiers, I've taken issue with all of them, which is why I'm developing my own. So for what it's worth, uh, no offense to anybody else that's done one of these or read one of these, but these are what I thought made the most sense for the people that I've worked with, people that I've experienced. Level one, freedom from bad debt. So when you think of bad debt, Dan, what immediately comes to mind? I mean, number one would be credit card debt. So that, I think, is the epitome of bad debt. You can have highest interest rates, hardest to dig out of, especially if you're on a tight budget. Definitely. I think of also payday loans. I think of certain types of medical debt. Basically, anything where you've gotten yourself into, uh, whether it's your own fault or not, but an overspending sort of situation, that tends to lead to what we consider bad debt. So on the opposite side, things that I think are fairly productive debt, depending on somebody's definition, home mortgage. If you're purchasing an appreciating asset that is within your spending power, I think a home mortgage is considered good debt. I also think student loans, to an extent, uh, are considered good debt. That's an investment into your future earnings power. If you didn't have other resources to uh, finance that activity, I do think student loans are, are uh, worthy for, for the right folks and the right students. And number three, and I think this is, if we're going to call it a controversial one, auto loans. Uh, I think a fairly low interest auto loan is responsible debt to hold for a number of people. So I'm going to I'm going to put those in the okay debt category. Maybe not good debt, but okay debt, which is going to allow us to say you are free from bad debt. I'm with you on the auto loans. I think it's only controversial because there are some big pundits out there who say that you should always buy your vehicles in cash. But 
for someone who's looking for a way to get around and get to work, which is important, you know, sometimes the car they could afford by buying in cash is going to be a debt in and of itself. If you're buying a clunker that's going to be need to be repaired all the time, are you really doing yourself a service or would you take a loan to get a better car that's going to save you money in the long run? No question about that. And I think that people call it a bad debt because it's a depreciating asset. And we know that. I mean, maybe not in the last like year or two now that we've got a shortage of used cars and you can basically buy a car off the lot and flip it at the moment. But for most people, your car is going to depreciate. You're not buying it because you think it's going to go up in value. Every mile driven, every day that it's off the dealer's lot, it becomes a little bit less valuable. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have value to you. Right? If that is how you get to work, it is enabling you to earn an income. It is potentially a necessity in that case. And so, yeah, there's an argument to be made that you shouldn't buy too much car or a car that you can't afford. And we're not advocating for biting off a huge loan just to buy the fanciest, newest thing. But I believe that enabling yourself to go to work and earn an income, I can call that good debt and sleep very well at night. Uh, and so I think that that's going to continue to be in my okay to good category. Cool. It is decided. Auto debt can be okay debt. We're done. Level two, emergency fund attained. Dan, what's the guidance from you on how much an emergency fund should be? As with everything, it depends on your personal situation. Typically, we're looking to th- for three to six months of your basic living expenses. So, you know, if you're a dual income household, perhaps you can be on the lower end of that spectrum because you have some safety net in the form of someone else working and and providing. Uh, If you're in a high risk job or a commission job where you might go longer periods without income, perhaps you should scale that up a little bit to make sure you can get through any gaps where you're earning less than, than usual. I also think the other two things that I would put in that category on whether I would scale up or back is the volatility of the industry you work in. Uh, If you are in an emerging industry or one that is not completely certain in terms of its future, maybe go on the high side. You may have more likelihood of a layoff. You may have more uh, likelihood of a gap in employment. Um, Similarly, if you're in a very specialized field and there isn't a lot of that field kind of around you locally and it might require a move, something like that. So that would definitely influence me to be on the higher side of an emergency fund. The other thing would be if your housing situation or your vehicle situation, what we just noted, has a lot of risk. If you're in a historic home and every single appliance in your home is 25 plus years old, the likelihood is you're going to have a big expense crop up, whether that be a roof or an HVAC system, right? Something that might be multiple thousands of dollars that you have to fix as a homeowner. If you're a renter and you can simply put that back onto your landlord or leasing company, whatever it is, maybe not as much risk there. So I do think it always plays back into your personal situation, but how much income you would need to replace, how much expenses you'd need to be able to replace, plus what is your financial exposure to some other forms of risk would be how I end up gauging whether or not you've got an emergency fund. But level two of our financial freedom checklist is attained when you've got an emergency fund in place. What an interesting time to stress test some of those numbers. Just even from the things you mentioned, talking about how secure your employment is. I mean, we're seeing layoffs, widespread layoffs in a lot of industries right now where you might have thought you were very stable. I mean, two years ago, you couldn't hire engineers fast enough in Silicon Valley. And now you're seeing some of these tech companies start to lay people off uh, or at least rescind some job offers and things of that nature. So 
Uh, very much a, a scary time, and we're not making light of that by any means, but uh, I do think it is uh, indicative of just how quickly some things can change. So, um, you know, something to be aware of and, and be honest with yourself about, you know, how employable are you and how uh, how much are you easily able to shift uh, your skill set to something else? I mean, even talking about the security of renting, you might be avoiding the costs of home ownership, but I don't know if anyone here is on next door, those like community boards, but I'm seeing crop up everywhere people talking about their rents increasing by 15 or 20% from where they were a year ago. So even just affording yourself the flexibility to absorb that kind of cost, which may be unexpected, and it might be hard to find an alternative. You might be stuck where you are or, you know, facing some very challenging decisions about your your living arrangements. I think that's fair. So number three for me, this one's a little bit of an arbitrary line in the sand. I think three and four are the most nebulous of my checklist, but I do think that this one is meaningful. One year of your expenses available. So it doesn't necessarily need to be in your emergency fund. It doesn't have to be in... Uh, you know, pure cash, but between taxable brokerage accounts that you could access without penalty or between an income stream that you've got, if you've got an investment into a business or some sort of a real estate fund that's kicking off some cash, right? That in a single year, you've got access to capital that you could take a full year off if you needed to. Again, that's a little bit of an extended emergency fund, but I'm, I'm trying to stress that I don't think it has to be in pure cash. It doesn't have to be prepared for an emergency. But in my mind, there is something to be said for, for being able to just put a stake in the sand and say, I could take a full year without an income if I had to, and that I could be okay. I could get access to or liquidate a few things, and I'd be able to cover a full year's worth of expenses. I do think that that's an important mile marker. If we're talking about independence and freedom, I, I think I agree with you. It's the freedom to to be in a situation and say, I don't have to do this. Like This isn't good for me. I'm going to walk away and we'll figure it out. And having a one-year runway to do that, whether that be just for mental health or looking for new opportunities, or maybe you want to take a gamble and switch industries or build a business and you have the ability to do that. And, you know, maybe, maybe you don't have the resources behind you to go long past that. And we were talking beforehand, maybe you're jeopardizing some of your longer term goals along the way to afford yourself the privilege to make that decision. But it's definitely for me, uh, on the, the road to financial independence to be able to make that call. A hundred percent. And that leads right into, uh, what I'll call number four, which is partial financial freedom. And what I mean by this is that uh, we've talked about it in our Coast Fire episode, but basically that you've created enough resources that your future planning is no longer reliant on you continuing to save at the same level that you are. So that allows you to do so many things. It allows you to do something like downshift, where you're going to go, I think the classic example is somebody that's been promoted into management because they were a great technician and maybe now they want to move back into a role with a little bit less management responsibility. They want to go back down the ladder rather than continue to climb up it. Their job is stressful, whatever. You've built that freedom if you're no longer relying on continuing to save at that same level. Additionally, if you've got some sort of a passion project or some sort of a business that you want to start that you just know is not going to earn at the same level of income, but you think that it's going to earn you enough money to, to maybe live on, but not continue to save. You've bought yourself that freedom because the assets you've saved 
are going to con- continue to compound and grow, right? They're going to be what kind of carries you the rest of the way, which gives you a lot of freedom in terms of what you have to do in terms of day-to-day responsibility. I could be making this term up, but I was listening to Motley Fool Money over the weekend, and they were talking about a similar a similar concept. And I think they use the term baristify, like barista financial independence, because it is you know, you still need some income coming in and they're using the roles of the barista and as the placeholder for, for the income job. But you don't need, like you said, the same level of income as you may have had before to contribute to the same level of savings. So you have flexibility in what you choose to do because the bulk of the work has already been done for your retirement. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful position. And it's one that we're seeing people exercise uh, I think a lot more. Uh, I think that's longer. A, it, it's more so a desire today that you want to be able to continue to work, not necessarily because you have to or because um, you know you're requiring that high level of income, but you want to be engaged. I, I don't hear many people tell me they want to go sit in a rocking chair, right? I mean that that's just the the fact of it. Uh, and so I think you're giving yourself that permission to do something fun, to take a chance because you've done the heavy lifting. And so this is really, uh, in my opinion, a reward for people that have shown a lot of early discipline in their financial planning uh, and have really gotten themselves into a very strong position moving forward. Certainly. And I'm doing more and more plans that factor in some level of downshifting instead of a hard cutoff for retirement. So I don't know if that's the trend. I, I feel like people want the financial independence much earlier. People are talking about quote unquote, retiring at 40 or 50, uh, but not stopping to work. They want to do something. They just don't want to have to do something. I mean, the other thing that I think falls into this category is a planned sabbatical. All right. If you were going to choose to take a year off and granted, we already talked about having a year of expenses being a benchmark, but if you've only gotten to a year of your expenses being available, if you, if you needed to use those resources, obviously it's great that you have them. That's way better than not having them but it's probably still going to change your plan. In this partial financial freedom segment, uh, we're kind of saying that you could choose to take that gap year and it doesn't necessarily throw you off track from what you're planning to do otherwise. I think that that's kind of the difference for me and why I built it into two steps there. Because again, you could kind of think of those similarly, uh, but in my mind, there's a lot more baked in to being able to say, I can take a planned year off. I can take a, a sabbatical, I can take the downshift if I choose to. This is kind of a sidetrack, but it's where my mind went to as we were talking about this. Having enough money to take a planned year off or a sabbatical, your year of expenses is not necessarily the same as your salary, right? Because you're, if you have that money in after-tax accounts, you don't need to worry about taxes. You don't need to worry about some of the other things you're spending money on. So that's not a one-to-one relationship oftentimes. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, you may still have some capital gains, but it it depends. If you take the full calendar year off, remember that there's a 0% taxable long-term capital gains rate for a pretty big chunk of money. So uh, for a lot of people, they may be able to pair that uh, gap year, that sabbatical year, if they're choosing to take it with some smart tax planning, get some money out, maybe even do some Roth conversions, right? I mean, that leads into all the stuff that we talk about constantly that if you're kind of planning a low income year that you can really be strategic around how you choose to use it. All right, level five, full financial freedom, right? This is obviously the pinnacle. Uh, If you've got enough resources, 
that you no longer are reliant on work, that you can meet all of your expense goals, uh, all of your living expense needs, those things from your resources, whether that be income streams, whether that be assets, that's obviously what we would consider full financial freedom. Now, for a lot of people, that's not the end of the line, but that is kind of a very meaningful target because uh, as we're talking about, I think a lot of people are starting to think about work a little bit differently, think about retirement differently. But if I were to put a benchmark on it, I think 25 times the amount you're going to need annually, that gets you to that 4% safe withdrawal rate. So if you've got in excess of 25 times your annual spending need in your resources, I think that that's how you can kind of frame what your number is going to be. Yeah, I think that's a good benchmark and something to work towards. So if you're doing the quick retirement plan for yourself on the back of a napkin, take your spending goal, multiply by 25. There's, of course, a ton of nuance that goes around that, but it's a good gut check to see how you've how far you've progressed. Yeah, and that that's really the... I mean, this is why we use fancy software to get into some of this stuff is that the math simply gets more complicated if you need to figure out what your cash flow need is pre-retirement or excuse me, pre-social security, that's going to be different than what it is after social security has kicked in, for example. Um, And so what we're really talking about is that portfolio supported spend. So it's not necessarily 25 times the total amount you're going to need. If you're going to retire at, you know, age 70 and social security's on, that's going to be taking up some meaningful chunk of those expenses for you for most people if you've got pensions, if you've got other things, right? So it's 25 times the portfolio supported spend. For me, and I know this is probably an unrealistic view of the world, but when I'm looking at saving for retirement, I almost discount social security to zero. Speaking about independence, I like planning for me and things that I can control. Um, And I think probably a lot of younger folks are thinking in the same way. It's like maybe social security won't be there in the same way for me that it is for people today. Let's make sure I'm doing what I need to do to be self-reliant. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also a function of our age, Dan. I think as we get closer and closer, um, we'll have better clarity because uh, as we tell people in our practice all the time, the Social Security Trust is only taking up a small chunk of the burden of Social Security payments right now. Um, Yes, it's expected to run dry, but I believe if you're planning on 60, 70, 75% of social security benefits being there, that's probably safe. And and it's not that you can't go further. Obviously, you can in terms of your saving, and you can assume that you'll get nothing. But I do think that people underestimate how powerful it is. If you've been a high income earner, social security might be $30,000, dollars a year of annual income for you. That's like the equivalent of having an extra million bucks, right? So to to create a mental million-dollar shortfall can be Uh, in some cases, demoralizing. So um, I approach it from a place of let's be realistic. You know, if you've saved so diligently that nothing can can take you out, including a complete loss of Social Security, that's great, right? That is a wonderful place to be. Is it realistic? Is it necessary? Probably not, in my opinion. And And I don't want people to feel like that's the benchmark they need to get to. I do. Maybe that's if you're standing on top of the pyramid of financial independence, looking down on everyone within it. So I, I built a framework and you went to five plus, Dan. So your your fifth or really sixth level, in your opinion, is going to be nothing can touch me. Right. F you money, two middle fingers in the air standing on top of your pyramid. It's a family show, Dan. Settle down. It's all right. They've heard worse. 
So that's it. Those are our five levels, or really, let's call it six on Dan's version. But uh, I still think it's primarily five levels of financial independence. To recap them for everybody, level one, freedom from bad debt. Only having debt on your books that is productive to your ability to continue to earn an income, to build wealth, etc. Level two, emergency fund attained. You are ready for the unknown, right? You've got enough cash set aside that none of those little bumps and bruises that happen to us financially along the way are going to knock you offline. Level three, one year's worth of expenses available, right? In an account that you can get access to or something that you could liquidate fairly quickly, fairly painlessly, and create cash for yourself if it was necessary. Level four, partial financial independence, the ability to downshift, to kind of coast into retirement if you wanted to take on a lesser responsibility or lower income sort of role, the ability to take on a a hobby or a passion project and explore entrepreneurship if you have not done that at this point. You really build yourself a lot of flexibility by having that early nest egg in place. And for me, level five, full financial freedom, that's really where the world opens up and you can think about what do I want to do versus what do I have to do. Dan's calling it level six that you can even do the same thing without social security or the reliance on any other programs that are going to support you. Um, I think in Dan's example, that's even more aggressive because you'd probably have to get rid of things like Medicare as well if you're going to say, I don't need the government support and then you're self-funding healthcare. So I, I could make Dan's example look really crazy if I wanted to. It's the most American thought I've ever had. Leave me with it. Any final thoughts for our listening audience this week, Dan? No, I, I think this is a great framework to track as you track your personal financial goals, see where you fall across those levels, and um, you know, set timelines on when you hope to get to the next one. I think measuring is, is a great way to, to move you forward. Agreed. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week. If you've got questions for us, things you want to hear me and Dan weigh in on, whether they're personal finance, business, or investing related, check your balances at Outlook.com is the email address for the show. We will catch you all next week.